Well, thank you, Travis, very much. It's uh, good to be back with you again after being away from you uh, for a week. My family and I attended a nephew's wedding down in Florida, and uh, it's always good to come back to our church family, so it's good to be with you. Concerning the passage this morning, there are times when I wonder if maybe I have bitten off more than I could chew with you. On a Sunday morning, I wondered about that uh, this past week as I was working through the particulars of this passage. I'm just trying to keep us on task as we're working through Ephesians together. If you have ever uh, studied this passage in a Bible study, perhaps you have taught it in a Sunday school class, maybe you've even preached on it, it's a, a foundational passage for the church. It's a popular passage. If you've gotten into it, you know uh, there are a lot of particulars about this passage that are deeply discussed and debated somewhat. Uh, Who exactly are some of the individuals that Paul refers to here in their speaking ministries? And what exactly is the nature of the relationship between these speaking ministries to the serving ministry in the church? There's a lot of discussion about that. I want you to know that I'm aware of all those debates and those discussions, but I think that regardless of where we come down on some of these issues, and it's impossible to be dogmatic about all of them, uh, Paul's message is clear, and it basically comes down to the same thing. We're going to consider that this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Eternal Father, whose dwelling place is the source of heavenly light, we ask that you would send forth your light and truth now so that every secret fear in our hearts might be consoled by your presence and your goodness. Grant to us your Holy Spirit now that he might, we might know the joy of your abiding presence with us. Grant to us the spirit of truth that we might dwell in the shadow of the Most High and abide in the shadow 
of the Almighty. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. That momentous event when the late Queen Elizabeth II ascended her throne in 1953 was accompanied by the giving of gifts. may not know this, but in Great Britain it is the custom for the newly crowned monarchs to bestow gifts on the subjects in their realm. Uh, Canada was part of the British Commonwealth in those days, and because of that, I read that 90,000 children in Newfoundland received a box of candy upon Elizabeth's coronation. But a significant number of those children received their gifts by airdrop from the heavens as the Royal Canadian Air Force flew over. Well, a more spectacular occasion of gift-giving from the heavens accompanied our Savior Jesus Christ's ascent to His throne of glory. The Gospels in the book of Acts tell us that three days after His sacrificial death for our sins, Christ rose victorious from the grave, and then 40 days after His resurrection, before the astounded eyes of His disciples, He ascended to His throne of glory. And then ten days after that on Pentecost, just as the Father had promised, Christ poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit from the heavenly realms on His church. And Paul celebrates that momentous event here, and he reminds us, doesn't he, that the church of Christ is a gifted body, and that it grows to maturity as each part does its work. Now, as Paul begins chapter 4 of this letter, he's explaining to us now what the church of Christ is like. And much as in the case of a human body, the church is a complex living organism. I mean, like the body, there is this diversity within this underlying unity, many different members united in one body. Now, Pastor Travis dealt with you last week on this matter of the unity of the church. There is one body, there's one faith, there's one family of God, but we shouldn't misunderstand our unity now as some colorless, uh, monotonous kind of uniformity. Every Christian is not an exact replica of every other Christian. It's not as though you and I are all stamped out by some celestial cookie cutter. Instead, Paul says, the church is exciting in its diversity. And this is true not simply because of our different temperaments and our different personalities, but, but more fundamentally because each one of us has received a spiritual gift from our ascended and our reigning Savior. And I think that's kind of elevating, isn't it? Each one of us possesses this kind of dignity. On the one hand, Paul can speak of saving grace, this grace of God which saves sinners and is given to those who believe. But here Paul speaks instead of serving grace. Or the grace of God which equips God's people to serve. We might put it this way. 
every member ministry in the body of Christ is the New Testament ideal. And because of that, here's something we have to reckon with. This is difficult for us. The unity in the church is not like a well-oiled machine. That's the challenge for us. Instead, the picture that we have here is that of a body containing diverse but necessary and contributing parts. You see, without our common unity as a body, there's no church. But without a diversity of gifts, this church is not healthy, it doesn't function any more than a body can properly function without its arms and legs. So what is it that Paul teaches here in this passage about the use of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ? The first thing is this. He speaks about our duty. Our duty. There's this interesting contrast that occurs between verses 6 and 7. Maybe you caught it. In verse 6 we read about God as the Father of all, who is over all, who is through all. But then in verse 7 we read, but... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, isn't Paul reminding us in these words how our ascended in our reigning King Jesus delights? He absolutely delights to bestow on his church what is good. He delights to lavish on his subjects the, the benefits and the spoils of his victory over our sin and, and judgment and, and death for us. I mean, what is the measure of our duty? What is the measure of our responsibility to this body that we call the church? It's this. It's as great as Christ's generosity to us. We can put it this way. To whom much is given, much is required. Now, Paul pictures here Christ's generosity through this lens of the event that's described in Psalm 66, 18. He quotes it for us in verse 8. Psalm 66, 18 pictures Christ as a victorious warrior. Now in the ancient world, a conquering general might be given a triumph in honor of his victory. He would ride through the capital city of his country in this grand stage procession. He would be followed by a vast number of prisoners of war. Numerous chariots and horses would carry the booty won in victory. And as this conquering warrior marched into the city, he would be welcomed, he would be praised by its adoring citizens. And these were magnificent occasions. And after the triumphal procession, celebratory gifts, the spoils of victory were at that point shared with the people. But you see, that's how Psalm 66, 18 pictures God as a victorious warrior who gives us gifts. Now, it may well be that David composed the 66th Psalm as a commemoration of that time when the ark of God was brought to Jerusalem the ascent of the ark of God up the mountain of God to 
Jerusalem pictured the Lord victorious over his and Israel's enemies and now marching into the capital city and ascending his throne, he received the praise and adoration of his people. But you see, Paul saw the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm in the ascension and exaltation of Jesus in glory, following his victory over our enemies of sin and judgment and death through his death and resurrection. But Paul changes the words of David's psalm slightly when he quotes it here. And it's significant. The Hebrew wording of David's psalm describes God as receiving gifts from men. But now when, they, when Paul cites David's psalm, he describes Christ as giving gifts to men rather than receiving gifts. So here's the picture for us. Pentecost was the triumph day of Christ. He celebrated his victory by this great outpouring of gifts on the subjects in his kingdom and the soldiers of his army. You see, our Lord has conquered. Our Lord reigns, and now as a sign of His victory, He has generously lavished on us gifts. And I think there are two truths that follow from Christ's victory and this lavish gift-giving that call us to our duty to serve. What is this? According to Christ's victory, each of us has received a gift. Each of us has received a gift. Every Christian has at least one gift from the Lord, and therefore every Christian has a significant role to play in Christ's body. I remember years ago, one of my elders in Pennsylvania, admonishing three young boys we had just received as communicant members in an interview, and, and, and using Paul's words to his young companion, Timothy, this elder admonished these boys, let no one despise your youth. Now how great was the measure of their duty to serve? It was as great as the measure of God's grace to them in Jesus. He predestined them to adoption through Jesus Christ. He redeemed them from sin and judgment and death by Christ's blood. He indwelt them by His Holy Spirit. And so Robert said, already at your young age, you must now set an example of effective service. Also according to Christ's gift, each one of us must give according to his or her gifts. You know, Paul felt the effective use of his gifts was a stewardship that had been entrusted to him by God. And that's true of every believer. You see, the church is vigorous, the church is healthy only when all are serving according to their ability. In church history, it's been the church's failure to recognize us at times and it has contributed to its decline. But, but what Paul is calling us to here is not easy for us. Humility and gentleness and patience Bearing with one another in love, wise and discerning leadership, all of these things are necessary. I mean, on the one hand, church leaders must help facilitate informal ministries in the church. But on the other hand, those who minister informally should not be defiant. They should not be disruptive. 
but they should allow church leaders to direct their ministries according to the priorities of the church, according to the church's vision, so that these ministries are orderly and edifying and strengthening and upholding to the body. You and I have been gifted by Christ, our victor to serve the common good, our duty, and then our differences. Now here's something a little interesting. If you, if you compare the biblical lists of gifts that we have in the New Testament, uh, if you compare Romans 12 gift list with the two that are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you compare those with the lists that we have here in Ephesians 4, you'll notice that they differ. There's no unanimity between these gifts lists. And why is it? It's because there is great diversity of gifts in the church. There are great differences. I mean, any divinely given ability that edifies the church should be considered a spiritual gift. I wouldn't hesitate to say that the ability to sing and worship is a spiritual gift, or the ability to cook meals for church gatherings or mercy ministry is a spiritual gift, or the ability to manage finances for the church body. But is there a way to categorize the different gifts so that we can use them effectively? Well, one way that's popular today, and you may, have, you may be aware of this, is to break the different gifts down into a triad. A prophetic gifts and priestly gifts and kingly gifts, prophetic gifts are abilities to understand and articulate truth. Priestly gifts are abilities to understand and meet human needs. Kingly gifts are abilities to understand uh, direction and group needs. But I want you to notice that Paul does not adopt that approach here, does he? Instead, he ad adopts an approach that's very much like the twofold approach that Peter adopts. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, where, where Peter refers to gifts of speaking and gifts of serving. And I think Paul makes that kind of distinction here. And it seems to me that it's not Paul's intent so much as to categorize the different gifts as it is to show now the impact that the Word of God has on the work of the church. And I think that's the important thing here. The Word of God empowers and equips and it stirs the saints to perform the work of ministry. Speaking the Word, that's one thing that Paul directs our attention to here. First, Paul refers to apostles and the prophets. Now, Paul referred to these individuals back in chapter 2. And he said that they formed the foundation of the church with Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, while it's true that today there are some who function in apostolic types of ministry such as missionary church planters, and while it's also true that there are some who have prophetic types of ministries uh, such as representing the truth of God with boldness and clarity, Paul is not referring to those kinds of ministries here. The apostles... And the prophets he refers to were foundational ministries in the early church. At that point when the canon of Scripture was being expanded and completed, the ministry of the apostles and the prophets were once for all gifts. Paul refers to evangelists. Now it's difficult to be completely dogmatic here about the identity and ministry of these evangelists. When we examine the New Testament, we see that the men that Paul refers to here were not evangelists in the same way that the term is used today. 
It's interesting that only Philip is explicitly referred to as an evangelist in the New Testament. But we also know that Paul commanded his young assistant Timothy to do the work of, the, of an evangelist. So we ask ourselves, what is it that, that perhaps Philip and Timothy had in common with each other? Here's what they had in common with each other. Both worked closely with the apostles in their ministries. Both were something like apostolic lieutenants. Now, maybe that is how we should think of the seven men who were appointed to serve on behalf of the apostles in the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 6. I mean, the only two of that number that we ever hear again in the New Testament are Stephen and Philip, and both of them engaged in apostolic-like preaching ministries. Now, in this technical sense, the evangelists functioned in this inaugural period of the New Testament church. In this technical sense, the, like the apostles and the prophets, we don't have these individuals any longer in the church today. But yes, we can say there are individuals who conduct evangelistic style ministries today. And then pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers are clearly intended to be ongoing ministries in the church. It's interesting that in the Greek text, the two nouns are linked by this single definite article so that it literally reads, the pastors and teachers. And once again, what does Paul mean? I mean, are, are pastor teachers one ministry group with two functions? Or are pastors part of a larger group who are teachers, some of whom did not pastor because all pastors are called to teach, but not all teachers are called to pastor? I mean, again, it's, it's hard to be dogmatic about what exactly Paul claims here. But, but Paul is referring, I think, to elders or overseers in the church who are able to teach. But what's the bottom line of all of this? It's this, nothing, brothers and sisters, nothing is more necessary for the building up of Christ's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. That's Paul's point. And something more, given Paul's emphasis on the speaking of the word, it should not surprise us that whenever there has been this great spiritual quickening, an awakening sent by the Holy Spirit to the church, it has always been accompanied by an intense hunger for the word of God. When the spirit is moving, the people of God cannot get enough of the Word of God. And then serving the church. We're given the explicit reason for these words speaking ministries in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Speaking God's Word stirs the church to serve according to the different gifts Christ has given to His body. You see, the word harnesses the power in the gift so that this church grows to maturity. Now, how necessary? How necessary is the speaking of the word to the service and the health of the church? It is as necessary as oxygen is to the life of the body. And you know, it's interesting. There is a chapter from the history of the church in China that illustrates our point. I read that during Mao Zedong's cultural revolution in China 
Red guards flooded into cities. They flooded into towns and villages, systematically persecuting anyone it was believed violated Mao's teaching. In those days, to be caught with a Bible meant torture. It meant imprisonment at a minimum. House churches in Henan province, that was called the atheistic zone. Those house churches were blessed if they had one copy of the Bible. And the texts that were used for Bible study were hand-copied sheets. Each church's Bible was often protected by breaking it into several portions and then distributing it among the different house churches. That way, if one house was raided and its scripture was taken, the church would not lose the entire body Bible. It's interesting, but to secure more copies of the, the entire Bible, the Bible was, was copied by hand with teams that were sometimes working around the clock. And when confiscating raids see the, the scriptures, the people of Henan would desperately dig up the graves of Christians who they knew had been buried with their Bibles before 1949. Wing McDowell, the shepherd of one church, spent 22 years in prison. And during the Cultural Revolution, he had to submit to wearing handcuffs for four months and he was beaten daily. And when in his old age he was asked how it was that he endured, he simply said, the word. The word. And the same could be said for the Chinese church. There were some four million Christians in the church when Mao came to power in 1949. But today, the reports of something like over maybe a hundred million. Here's the thing. The staggering growth of the Chinese church has no parallel in history. And when an expert on China was asked why Christianity took its great leap forward during these darkest days of the Cultural Revolution, the expert said, light shines in the darkness. The Word of God stirs the different members of the body of Christ to build itself up in love. And in that way, we grow to maturity. Our duty, our differences, and finally, our dependence. Our service to God and our service to one another, it comes at a cost. And so it's very encouraging that Christ first ascended and then he ascended to fill us with his all-sufficient, empowering presence. Paul has spoken a great deal in this letter already about how we are the fullness of the presence of Christ. And that is because of this descent and the ascent of Christ. Now let us...
serve in dependence on Christ's all-sufficient humiliation for us. In passing, Paul notes in verse 9 that the ascension of Christ implies an earlier descent into the lower parts of the earth. And sometimes, sometimes this has been understood as referring to that period of Christ's activity between his death and resurrection. But I think that's wrong. The most natural way of understanding Paul's words is not as referring to Christ's death and burial, but rather to his incarnation when he became a man and when he lived on earth. In other words, Christ's ascension and exaltation was preceded by a state in a period of humiliation. Christ humbled himself to become a man. He humbled himself to be a servant. He humbled himself even to the point of bearing our sin under God's wrath and judgment in our place. As our representative, Christ was forsaken by his disciples. He was rejected by the world. He was cursed by God. On the cross, as our representative, he fought with the terrors, the enemies of death and the powers of darkness. On the cross, as our representative, he bore the full weight of God's anger and wrath against our sin. So what does that mean for us? It means this, let us trust in Christ's humiliation to reconcile us to God to be sure. But let us also trust in it to guarantee everything we need for the service of God and others. I mean, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all who believe, how can he possibly now fail to give us all things that are necessary? He can't fail. And then second, let us serve in dependence on Christ's all-sufficient exaltation. We believe not simply that Christ was raised from the dead. We believe that he is exalted in heaven. And there at the Father's right hand of favor, he intercedes for us. And he prays down the power of the Spirit to support us, to strengthen us in our darkest hour. My friends, in all of your trying circus, service, find fresh hope in your all-sufficient and exalted reigning Savior who says to you as he did to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, you and I don't hear about Henrietta Mears anymore. I would imagine that a number of you have never heard of her. But I remember her and I remember uh, there was a day when she was used mightily to strengthen the church through her speaking and her writing. Uh, Mears uh, suffered from childhood, from extreme eye myopia and general eye weakness and irritation, and it made her cry out to the Lord as Paul did to relieve her of this thorn in the flesh. But God in His wisdom and God in His mercy would not. And in her later years, she often remarked, and I quote her, I believe my greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life has been my failing sight, for it has kept me absolutely dependent on God. Mears went on to set the standard for Sunday school curriculum in her day. She created a publishing house. And she was influential in shaping the ministries of Billy Graham in his early years, Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, Dick Halverson, who became chaplain for many years in the U.S. Senate. That's just to name a few. 
But my friends, trust in Christ's all-sufficient grace to you. And you will find that he fills you with power in your weakness. And you will be able to say with Paul, when I am weak, then I am strong. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we glory that following our Savior's conquest of our enemies, of sin and judgment and death through His own death and resurrection, He ascended to your right hand of glory. He ascended to his throne where he reigns and you crowned his achievement with glory. And as a great conquering savior, he lavished on his church gifts. Gifts to serve. Father, I would pray that you would bless our church. I pray that during this period of transition, you would help us to maintain our fundamental unity with one another. There is one church, there's one body, there's one faith. But at the same time, help us to express that unity through the diversity of gifts that we have in this body. Father, I pray that your word would stir us to serve us according to our means, according to our abilities, according to our season in life. And Father, as we serve and sometimes find it challenging, I pray that you would refresh us and you would empower us. Because Jesus descended to this world to bring us to you through his death. He descended to this world to gather us into your arms and if you gave your son when we were sinners to save us, how much more can we depend on you to give us now everything that we need? And Father, I would pray as well that you would empower us according to Christ's ascension, his exaltation, his session right now in glory. How grateful we are that we have this friend in the highest place of all. How grateful we are that he ever lives to intercede for us. And as he does, he prays down the blessing and the fullness of his spirit to strengthen us in our most difficult days. Father, strengthen us, fill us, and empower us so that we can say with Paul, when I am weak, then I am strong. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior.